everybody. Welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations that we're already having. Special shout out to all our returning listeners and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. My guest today is an award-winning creative, speaker, author, and co-founder of the nonprofit Asians in Advertising. She's one of the few female Asian American creative leaders in the ad industry and is helping to shape the broader AAPI community by fighting against bias and xenophobia toward Asian Americans, as well as inspiring the next generation of talent through mentorship and scholarship programs. She's given talks on hundreds of stages, including South by Southwest, 3% and Ad Color. She is also a professor at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles and the president of TEDx Culver City. It is an honor and my privilege to welcome Bernice Chow to the show. Hey, Bernice, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Patrick. This is awesome. Yeah, it is. It's a real honor for me. We talked about it before, but you know, it's like there are certain guests that you want to get. It's like to help drive the show or whatever it might be to have that kind of conversation. And you were always on that list for me. And so it's a real, real privilege for me to be able to have this conversation with you today. And just for a little context for our listeners, we met in person at a dinner pre-South by Southwest. And then I ended up attending one of your workshops at South by Southwest. And I felt like we were just aligned on so many different things, especially when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to amplifying the voices within our community. And I just knew at that moment we were kindred spirits in certain ways. So again, it's great to be able to sit back down with you and be able to dive into a little bit more of the work that you've been doing. So thank you. Likewise. No, I just feel like this is two friends catching up. I'm so wonderful to kind of see you at different events. And I know we're in different states and different time zones, but we're always able to kind of see each other even once or twice a year at these different events. That is the amazing thing about these events. It's like I never would have imagined even four years ago thinking about attending something like this or having the opportunity to do so. And the fact that I've been able to frequently over the past couple of years and to meet folks like yourself has been awesome. And it's really inspiring to me to be able to do stuff like this, to have conversations about the different ways that we can uplift our community. Um, so I know I introduced you and gave a little bit of your bio, but I was wondering for people who may not know who you are that are listening to the show, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Sure. What's I'm trying to think what else I can add because that was a beautiful (laughs) intro. Uh, I'm a creative. So what that means is I spent the last 18 years working in advertising. I went to an art college. So I went to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. I'm California native, so born and raised here. I was born in Silicon Valley, now living in Silicon Beach in Los Angeles. And I have two kids. I have a two and a four-year-old. So boy and a girl, and they're lovely. Um, But for me, I just love the idea of, I'm, we'll talk more about this later, but I'm an introverted person. Mm. And the idea of me being out there and talking about this stuff is really like, I I call this a cosmic joke. uh, Because if you ask my husband seven years ago, what are kind of the worst things that Bernice is bad at? He would probably (laughs) be like public speaking and writing. And now that is like... (laughs) my primary source of income. So it is kind of a really interesting kind of place that I've ended up here. Uh, But with that, I recognize the privilege I have here. And I'm so incredibly grateful that I always want to bring value and kind of keep giving back to this community and uplift it. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think something that's really interesting that I found in our community specifically is how many of us identify as introverted. I I also do that. Um, One of my favorite definitions that I've heard of identifying as an introvert is that I'm an introvert playing an extrovert. 
And so like I can do, I'll, I'll go out and talk. I'll be sociable. But on the inside, I'm like, I kind of want to go sit in this corner <laughs> and be by myself for a second. And so I, I always find that very interesting. How many of us really have come maybe not out of our shells, but found our voices in different ways over the last three years, particularly during the pandemic. And I just love to be able to see how those things have changed for all of us. You are so eloquent and well-spoken. Like I would never have guessed that you identified as introverted, you know? So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, you said you've been working the ad space for a long time. Was there ever a moment for you specifically that stood out that said, I can do an effect change for maybe not even myself, but for the broader Asian or AAPI community in that area, in that industry? So, I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier that I'm the co-founder of a global nonprofit called Asians in Advertising, but to kind of go back a few years, I mean, I started in this industry where there's so many kind of different things that are at play. So I say that with, in advertising, it is a predominantly white space because it is kind of a newer career. Your parents didn't immigrate over here from another country going, advertising, that is success, <laughs> right? So it is kind of this, like nebulous, like, what is that? How do you get into it? What is, is that, is that a real job? And so there is kind of this like mystique around that, that usually people who are been Americans for several generations are more introduced to this career. And so going into the space, I immediately realized that a lot of things I wasn't really ready for. So instance, what does creative taste look like? What is good creative? What is bad creative? Also, I was often one-on-one and a lot of times that would be just as a female, let alone mm. as a person of color, let alone someone that was Asian, and then now a mom. There was a time where I was about 28, this was a, a many, many years ago now, where I looked around and I was like, I'm the oldest woman here. Mm. That feels a little unsettling because then where do I go from here, let alone someone that I could mirror? There was never an Asian woman in my field. And I look around and there are still... I would say I, I realize there's maybe one that I've met in the whole world that's an Asian CCO. Mm. And so that's where I was like, okay, what does my career look like and where does that go? And so for me, I was like trying to figure out the creative angle and then I was trying to figure out the female angle. And then I started realizing the way I was showing up in these rooms didn't make sense. Like I would be in these rooms, for instance, I have a very weak spot in conversation and that's classic rock. My parents mm. being immigrants didn't listen to classic rock. And, sure. <laughs> and the generation that was there or that was leading these meetings, this was their generation of music. And so a lot of the softball like conversations that would happen before the real meeting wasn't classic rock. And I'd be there going, yeah, Metallica, totally. No, and I have no idea. And I would have this like really blank look on my face. And I'm just like nodding along superficially because I don't want to raise my hand and go, I don't understand this conversation. I don't have the cultural references. I don't feel like I fit in in this room. And something that I've learned was I wasn't alone in this because mm. we saw there was, you know, much, many, many data points where they say Asian Americans, 80% of us don't feel like we belong here. And that's 84% of Asian American men and 80% of Asian American women in the workplace. Like we just don't feel like we fit in. And so I also started realizing other things. We would have these big brainstorm meetings where like the CCO would come in, the founder would come in, and they would give you a new brief on the spot. And the idea was you're supposed to throw in ideas into the ring. 
And as someone that was always taught to show up 150%, I don't want to give half form thoughts because mm. I'm going to get judged, right? I don't want to get, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to see me and think of me as an imposter and that I'm not worthy to be in this room if I did that. Mm. But on the other end of the thing, other way is like they saw me as a person that did not contribute to the conversation, to the idea process, that I wasn't a leader, I wasn't a thought person. Like I was showing these other things because that's how another culture responded. And so for me, I wanted to start something back in 2019, 2018. Finally in Los Angeles, I was working with four other Asians in a pretty large size company. And I was like, okay, we need to start something. Because when I looked at other organizations that existed for BIPOC, Asians weren't really included at this time. Mm. There was this thinking that we are white adjacent. And so when I looked at the boards or I looked at who was a member, I didn't see people that thought represented me. At the same time, I was looking at other advertising Asian or business Asian communities, and I didn't see a creative. Mm. And so I was like, okay, I feel like there's not a space where I fit in. And so I was like, all right, let's do something. And we had a great first meeting. And by the third meeting, it was the idea of, do we deserve this? Interesting. Right? If we do this, are we going to get in trouble? Are we being too exclusive? Like there was this whole idea of this apologizing for who we are. And so it didn't become anything. And it wasn't until the pandemic where I was, like many of us, we're all stuck at home. We were like craving this interaction. And of course, it started becoming a little bit more obvious when we all had equal size Zoom screens that I looked really <laughs> different, right? Because I think in most rooms, I'm not a tall individual. So I could tell, like, I, I couldn't really like, I guess, like, understand what I was saying. I was just like, okay, that's just a taller person. Sure. Whereas, like, on Zoom, I was like, oh, now <laughs> I can really see that we're not very diversified. And so I was, like, just craving that interaction. And I had the news on all the time and the rhetoric that was there, where I remember very clearly there was a segment about ailing communities from COVID, and it was mm. white, black, Hispanic. And then where did we see Asians? Where were we in the conversation? Oh, you know where we were. Kung flu, China virus, right. Wuhan. We were only in the negative. Right. And, only and, the perpetrator, not somebody yeah. who's also suffering from. Yeah. Exactly. We were only scapegoated to the point that then we saw the violence rise against this community. And today, you know, the stats are still showing that one out of two of us feel unsafe. And I was just talking to a friend about that. When I do see an American flag now... If someone's wearing an American flag or it's on a bumper sticker or it's in their front yard, I'm a little bit scared, right? I don't know what they think of me. I want to speak English a little louder. I mm. do. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to avoid them because the idea of we're perpetual foreigners is still kind of today's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And so that has been kind of a huge thing for me that I was like, okay, I feel really lonely Maybe someone else out there feels really lonely too. I met my co-founder, Jessalyn Lamb, and she is in DEI and learning development. She's the VP at Digitas Health. And I was like, oh, you, you are championing the same idea. We were sharing stories about our workplaces. She was actually on the board of many advertising clubs or, or, and organizations. And 
as a creative, we're usually too cool to join things. So I was like, <laughs> oh, these even existed? And I was like, this is the perfect person. And so I just kind of reached out to her after one 30-minute conversation and was like, mm. hey, I already paid for this domain from two years ago. Let's just have a Zoom call. Super easy. We'll just bring a bunch of us together for the first time. If we get 20 people, we can make so much change. And so we... I made the website on Squarespace on a Saturday. She reviewed it on a Sunday. We put it out on Monday. And in two weeks, we had 650 people sign up. Damn. Yeah. So I was like, (laughs) oh, so it's not just me. It's not just her. There's a lot of us who are feeling this way. And so what we thought was just going to be as really just honestly, like I would say like a small club is now 5,000. We're global and we're growing only two years later. So I'm so grateful that... I understand advertising and I come from a world of branding and marketing because that's really helped me not only build this brand as a nonprofit, but teach others how to build their brand for themselves so that they can be seen. Because as a community, we're often seen, often not seen. Right. And and what I can share is like, okay, I've done big mass branding for big corporations, for Super Bowl, for TikTok, for Comic-Con, for ComplexCon, whatever. How can we translate some of that stuff for our own personal branding? And that's been such a wonderful message to share back out of how can we keep showing up in places that we're not seen. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I think it's really helpful context for the conversation that we're about to have. And also, I just really appreciate you sharing that journey that you went on to get from there to here now. Um, lots of stuff that I resonated with, especially talking about seeing the American flag anywhere anymore. I live in the Midwest in Indiana specifically, and I have that same feeling. Like I'm a six foot male, you know, I carry like those privileges and still I have a little twinge of fear every time that I see that, because like you, I I don't know what that person thinks of me, you know, and I was adopted. So I grew up with white people. I grew up in a white community. I very much ties to whiteness that I'm currently trying to figure out and navigate and unpack. But like when people see us on the street, they don't see the context of our lived experience. They just see most likely someone from China that they've just labeled as this is what it means to be Asian. And for a lot of us, 100%. And a lot of us that creates danger, it creates unsafety that we for a long time have had to navigate on our own. And so that's what I love about what you are doing specifically, you and Jessalyn with Asians and Advertising is creating that space. And something that we talk about on the show a lot is modeling. And the fact that we, for a lot of us in a lot of different fields and industries, wherever we come from, have not had the models to understand and develop like the, the thought processes, the coping mechanisms, the tools to navigate wherever it is that we are, to not only feel safety, but then to feel bravery to claim it and then go out and do our own thing and create something like what you all are creating. And so the other thing that stood out to me was like, when you talked about the stats that we saw early pandemic, how it's only labeling, it's labeling every community, but ours, it's like Asians don't exist here. And that's what we're going to talk about is, is this visibility it is or invisibility that we've been subjected to sim- from the beginning of, Asians being in this country, literally the the Chinese workers who worked on the railroad, literally erased from history, kept out of the pictures um, of that work, you know, and so we've always, always had to push back on that. And I feel like for a community as, as large and diverse 
as the Asian diaspora community here in America, visibility is such a huge endeavor. Like it's such a big thing to want to even do for ourselves, let alone for all of us. And you and Jess Lim literally wrote the book on how do we go about achieving something like that. So you talked a little bit about AIA doing that work. And that was that's the point of it is to, to create visibility for folks in the advertising industry specifically to know that they there there's community here. There are people here that are like you that you can resonate with. When did the idea come to you that we needed to put this down on paper and that way we need to get this message out to people who maybe aren't in the advertising industry as well? I would love if it was that like I manifested the book. But <laughs> I I mean I'll, the truth of it is we started the organization in March and in October we had a reach out. So I mm. actually received an email from a person that was an acquisitions editor at Wiley Publishing and they were asking me if I wanted to write a book. And so I forwarded it to Jocelyn. It's like, what do you think of this? And I always tell the story that she was like, this isn't real. She was like, this is, <laughs> this is a complete scam. She's like, I totally read about these things. These aren't real. They're just going to want to us to give them money. And then that's it. Like, <laughs> and I was like, maybe, uh, but let's, let's, let's just take the call. Let's just see what this is. And surprisingly enough, it was a real outreach. And on the other end was an Asian American woman who really saw that there was representation lacking. And she was like, well, I love what you're doing in this space with Asians in advertising, really helping Asians to ladder to all levels in the workplace. Would you ever write a book more to a general audience in the Asian American community? Because mm. there isn't a book here. And we were like, how is that possible? We've been in this country, not just us, but like, Asians in general have been in this country for so long. How is there not a guide to this, to understanding the workplace or the nuances of us in the workplace? And so we're like, okay, let's try it out. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was such a wonderful process. I am so grateful to have a counterpart so that we can keep each other accountable. That mm. partnership has been really lovely for us, uh, that we can also bring two different skill sets together. So it's been really nice. Our book is actually six and six chapters, six that really resonate with me and then six that really resonate with her. The first of the three sections is really about working on yourself. And so whether that's personal branding, find your voice, career pivots, asking for money, and then it's working with others. So mentorship, work-life balance, even mental health. And then lastly, mm -hmm. how do we move forward in this space? How do we impress upon the community? How do we keep growing it and helping it? And so it's been really nice to write this book and put it out there as a form of communication and really remind each other, you know, the title is called The Visibility Mindset. And it is like, okay, how do you keep thinking in that way of being proactively visible? Sure. Because or default, and a lot of times it's cultural or pressed upon us, right? Stereotyping that kind of makes us invisible. So if you can kind of reframe that into a positive and really make that an actionable thing in things you do that will help you develop that workplace confidence or just that way of standing out so that you can be seen for truly what an asset you are. I've heard only great things about it. And the reason I personally was drawn to it and drawn to your work in the first place is this idea of visibility. And not only like making yourself be seen like in, okay, I see you at work. I see the things that you're doing. But 
knowing that you don't have to invisibilize or hide who you are as a person, specifically like our ethnicity or our race or our cultural background. Like, I feel like, like you said, you know, sometimes it's impressed upon us, even through generations to hide that because this is the only way you can survive in this country. And I feel like we're, we're, we're on, we're, we've reached this point of, we're not going to do that anymore. Like we can't do that anymore. Our survival depends on us being able to be visible. And so the fact that you've not only wrote the book, but you have this whole organization centered on doing that kind of work is so important. And I'm sure you address it in the book, but what part of the visibility of our community do you think is missing from the conversation that we have right now? I mean, I think honestly, unity. How can Mm. we work together to solve this? I know so many of us come from parents that are immigrants or we're first generation and there is this idea of scarcity, right? We are that one in that room. We need to hold our place. Like if I share what I know, then you're going to get in on it. Like there is this idea that we don't share. Um, I mean, at least I feel like I didn't know these or being vulnerable, right? So maybe it isn't the lack of sharing. Maybe it's the lack of being vulnerable with others because we're taught to not ever let our, you know, crack show, right? The saving face. And so it's really hard to talk to people and be like, yeah, I got fired. Or Mm. that person who's totally unworthy got my spot. Or, you know, these are really difficult conversations when we're taught to show that everything goes okay. Right. right. That we're always positive. We're always happy. We're always in a good place. It's fine. It's all it's fine. fine. Right. <laughs> or or be comfortable with what you have. Right. Mm. The idea of not rocking the boat, uh, being grateful for what you have. These are all things that we're kind of taught or, you know, society, you know, assumes that we know. And because of that, you know, I think there's all these things where we kind of haven't been working together. Like I wasn't I didn't feel like I was in a place where I'm like, oh, you are probably feeling what I'm feeling. Let's talk about how we change the situation for both of us. Let's work together, right? It was always like, I felt like it was more like you are in it for yourself. And mm-hmm. so I remember working for someone, you know, that was an impressive creative. And I was like, hey, this person over here needs you to help uplift them. They're really talented. They deserve a promotion. And they kind of looked at the other person was like, they're not ready. And I was like, well, why do you think that? And they were like, well, they just don't have it. And I'm like, no, I think you're missing the fact that you are Asian. They are Asian. That person's Mm. quiet, just like how you are quiet and that someone had to pull you forward. So as a community, I do think we need to reach back and pull forward and just keep doing that so that. It's not the idea that we're taking from each other, but we're uplifting all of us at once. And so, you know, within our organization, we have a mentorship program because a lot of us didn't have mentors, especially if you're only looking at your company and you're one of one, you probably don't have that person to mirror right. after with that same experience. I had mentors or managers at work who would were white men, super supportive, but they didn't have my lived experience. And when right. they were like, oh, go ask for that raise, go ask for that project demand for it. You deserve it. I'm like, I did. They didn't take me seriously. Right. And they were, that was something that they didn't understand. And so for us, that mentorship program is so incredibly important. That's something we're actually working with 3F on, you know, to broaden it out to a larger community. And I think we're still two weeks from closing and we already have over 350 signups. And so this happens every year. So 
maybe if you're not in it for this year, definitely keep applying for next year. We also have scholarships because I didn't realize how many senior executives had career coaches. Mm. And if you are underpaid and underpromoted, you probably don't have a couple spare thousands for this. Right. However, as an organization, we really believe this work is important, but also the nuances of it. So we do have an API coach that we work with every year so that we can kind of bring in a different like perspective on this mm. and more of a one-to-one approach. And so we do these different ways to really close the gap for which we wish we had coming up in our career. I absolutely love that. One, I think unity is such an important thing. And you touched on scarcity mindset like that we live under. And we talk about that. We talk about that on this show so much, just unprompted. It comes up because it's when you, it just affects us in so many ways. And like we have just been conditioned to think that there are 20 seats at the table. There's only one available for everybody else. It's not a white man. And it's like, well, hold on a second. What about these other 19 seats? Like how, like, why can't we take up this space too? Yes. And it's because we've been told those seats aren't for you, but they are like, they all are. And I think it's so important to name that. And for us to not perpetuate that within our own diaspora, you know, I think yes. that's super important. And that's something that I've come away from a lot of these events over the last couple of years thinking is how do we make these even more accessible for folks who won't have these opportunities? you know, who are doing amazing things, but for whatever reason, they're invisible to even us within our own community. How do we do that? And like through your mentorship and scholarship programs, like that's one way. It's how do we take the resources that we've already been able to amass and how do we provide, use that privilege to provide that platform and opportunity? I think that's absolutely amazing. How do we inside of our diaspora address this missing piece of unity? I mean, I honestly think it's education, right? If if we've never had this conversation before, I can't blame someone who doesn't do this, right? That sure. doesn't realize that this is happening. And so for all our conversations that we have, we have a bunch of events that we happen throughout the year within our organization. And it's really laying that foundation of understanding because my mom was like, the model minority is great. <laughs> and I'm like, well, there's history and context behind it and how that's hindered us. You know, this was created by a white male sociologist named William mm. Pearson to really justify Japanese internment camps against, at the same time, we have the civil rights movement. So they're like, look, these Japanese, they're so willing to reintegrate into society, even though we took everything away. Right. Why can't you quiet down and be like them? And that's the history of it. And because of that, we're not really considered, you know, some of our communities are ailing. And so when I tell people the poorest community in New York by an ethnic majority are Asians by 29.8%, people are usually like shocked. They're like, how can right. Asians be poor? You guys are the model. And I'm like, no. And so I do understand that this isn't a conversation just for our allies. This is a conversation for our community as well and making sure that we're all coming in from the same place. And so a lot of times I do use data because I don't want to be like, oh, my own lived experience, you know, you need right. to help this community, right? Like I really want to say like, hey, there's data saying that it's just not me thinking this. This right. is really true. And so that's even within our book, we try to justify for our community and outside the needs and struggles while being different, are still very valid. And so for me, I'm like, okay, we just need to keep this education going because I love that Asian American studies is becoming a thing in schools, but what about everyone else that's past that 
right? Like right. what about the people that are in the communities now? How can we get on the same page? So I do think wherever I can have that conversation, whether I'm speaking on a stage or with friends, I'm always like, do you know this is happening? <laughs> Did this happen to you? Like, I just want to make sure you're 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 getting that raise at your promotion. Like, you're helping right. others. Like, I think it's up to all of us to spread the word, whether that's managing up, managing down. You know, horizontal. Like, we just need to keep that <laughs> communication going in that space. I love that, and I think that's another thing that we talk about a lot here on the show is being able to react to things that happen from a place of knowledge as opposed to a place of just emotion. Like our lived experience is built in a lot of emotion, and yes, we're all experts in that. But if we can also come with those data points, you know, it it, it sets us up on a little bit higher of a tier to be taken a little bit more seriously. And unfortunately for our community, we have to have hard data in order to be taken more seriously. Like it's changing obviously a little bit, but we still need to show up in, in different ways, go the extra 50%, you know, beyond a hundred in order for people to be like, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's something that we need to be paying attention to. And so your answer is probably going to be the same for this, but you, you know, you mentioned education for us inside the community. Is that the most important piece for folks outside of our community in order to make sure they're addressing not only the missing piece of unity, but also to be able to stand in solidarity with us? I mean, that's definitely a very important component because there isn't that education, right? We learn right. about Black struggle growing up in school, but I remember that textbook section about all of Asia was like one paragraph right. and it was about China, not about Asian Americans. And so like, I'm always like, did you know that Asians came here before pilgrims? Like I'm right. like, we've been here since 1587. <laughs> so we're not foreigners. Like, so, it, <laughs> and it's like, I feel like that is like rewiring, right? Yes. If you were told one story, there needs to be a rewiring that happens. And to understand that isn't a quiet Asian that's happy and hardworking. They were taught that harmony, humility, and hierarchy is how you succeed. And so when they're doing that, it's not because they like to be a busy worker bee that's never a manager that doesn't want to be a leader. That's because that's how they were taught to be successful. And so really recognizing this makes you then go a different approach to each person, right? So as a manager, mm -hmm. as a leader, you're like, Oh, so maybe when you did ask for that raise, you already mold about like you mold over about it for the last six months. And that was all your courage to ask me versus, oh, that was a quick thought that you just happened to have one day and you just blurted it out. Right. Like right. there is like a different layer of understanding how we're taught and that nuances of that. And so just kind of realizing that and that perspective of it, I think a lot of times has really helped our allies understand, OK, that's a very different community. Like I had a very impressive friend that I recommended into an agency and they were like, oh, they're just not the right culture fit. And I was like, oh, because that's a Japanese woman who's like is being respectful and is a little mm. quieter on interviews. She doesn't know to fight back with questions and to really press upon it. Mm. But like they couldn't recognize the talent because they didn't think she had the communication skills. And I was like, it's not communication that's how they show respect. And so it is understanding these things that we can have diverse hiring boards. We yep. pay more attention to referrals and what they said about them. And so like, I do think there is that understanding each other's languages in terms of how we show up to really see the real talent behind that person. 
I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I appreciate you giving that specific example. Have there been any other situations that you found yourself in where you've had to like, okay, so I'll frame the question as this. We talk a lot recently about the unnecessary labor that we have to go through to educate folks outside of our community, not only about like workplace stuff, but just about us in general and how to be kind people directly specifically towards Asian and Asian American folks. Have you, is there, has there ever been a moment where you've had to really like do the extra labor to help somebody understand like, this is what you're missing. This is what you're getting wrong. And if you don't mind sharing that, how has, how did that specific experience help shape you to know like, this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes. So, I mean, we're totally taught not to rock the boat, to just let things go. And so for a long time, I got a lot of microaggressions, whether being called another Asian woman's name Mm. or, you know, having these stereotypes put on me. And I just let it go, right? Where are you really from? That's a really common Mm. one. You speak English so well. Like, these are ones we've heard. And I just kind of like, let it slide. Ha ha ha. No. <laughs> you know, like, thank you. You know, you just kind of let, oh, she's so much. Yeah. Like that's a great person to confuse me for. Like I took it in all these ways mm. where I just let them slide. Right. I just let this person say that thing to me and I just let it go. But you know, these are things that you can only really tell someone that's Asian. Right. right. I feel like other cultures would say something back that would call it out or call it in, however you want to put that. And so it wasn't until I started talking about this and realizing these weren't just me, right? This Mm. is happening to so many of us that I was like, oh my gosh, if I don't say something today, the next person might not say anything. And if I can protect that person from having that same, oh my gosh, like I don't belong here feeling when people say that to me, I want to help that person. And so, you know, a very specific example, I have a really good friend and she came she grew up in UK. And one day she was like, oh, my son speaks like a China man because her son was two and was learning Mm. how to speak. She totally didn't mean anything about it. Right. But she kind of did because the idea was that her son couldn't speak well. Right. And so for me, I was like, first thing I did was like, she's a good friend. She didn't mean it. I just like, I was like, oh, I'm just going to let this go. But after a week of like, oh my gosh, this is my really good friend. I feel really unsettled about this. I had a conversation, a really hard conversation. I was like, I need to bring this up to you. You said this. And she has totally forgotten it by that. She was like, oh, everyone says that. It's not a thing. And then I was like, yes, and this is why, right? You're saying that people where I, you know, the people that are my ancestors can't speak correctly. <laughs> like, mm. And you're perpetuating this idea that, you know, people that look like me don't belong here so much so that you can just make this a euphemism. And so that's even happening at work where I'll be in a regular meeting and someone will be like, oh, the clients are going to Shanghai us mm. or, you know, we've heard opening the kimono. And these are things where I'm like, OK, you may have not meant something by it, but oh, part of me to show empathy for my community and for you is to have that conversation while being super tough, right? <laughs> like where I'm not a combative person. And so I try to find, you know, the best way and with the most grace to be like, oh, I prefer if you not said this. Like instead of being super defensive and being like, you know, coming out there going, why? Why would you say this? That's terrible, horrible. I just be like this, this, you use this phrase. It made me uncomfortable. 
because of this. And I would rather you say this instead, showing your cards, right? Yeah. Like that, that's yeah. another, that's the means the same thing. Uh, or, you know, by saying Shanghai, you're saying everyone from, you know, my country is a crook. Um, right. So it's like, I do think if we work from this place of empathy, it stops this rhetoric, it stops this conversation, and it just helps bring understanding to our allies. I really appreciate you sharing both of those examples, especially the one with your friend, because I think that's where it gets really difficult for a lot of us is to, again, not be so readily willing to suppress who we are and how these things make us feel, especially from a microaggressive standpoint, especially when it comes from our close inner circles from folks who are not part of our community. You know, it's like it's easy to give a pass, but then we sit on it and a lot of us will chew on it for a week and still push it down. Like I've done Mm. that many times. Yes. And so for you to model and share that example and model like, okay, I can think about this and it can bother me and I can still make the decision to like to confront it and not in a defensive way. And I would say that's like that probably goes to your ad career roots of like, here's how not only just based in empathy, but just like, here's how we can use language in an appropriate way or in, in a way that's not going to make this person feel alienated, but hopefully educate them to develop that empathy. I think that's so important. I just really appreciate you talking about some of these things that I think that are on the surface we are having conversations about. I think you are obviously and what you all are doing at AIA are having these conversations within your industry. And I think for my audience specifically, it's important because we run the gamut. It's not just I know there are uh, not just people from the AAPI community listening to this show. And that's one of the things that I hope to do is to be able to build that foundation of empathy. So when we move forward, we can move forward together as opposed to climbing on top of each other, trying to get to the next rung of whatever ladder it is that we're climbing. And so I really, really appreciate you sharing that. I really appreciate you dropping so much knowledge in such a short time here during this conversation. And like I said, you know, it's it's labor for us, for you to share so much of this who are you learning from right now that is really inspiring you or teaching you different ways to think about things? Who, who right now is, is, is someone that you're learning from? I think this is a wonderful question. I feel like this answer changes frequently for me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, at this moment, I'm really learning from my children. Um, mm. And I mean that not just trying to dodge the question, um, <laughs> but I am learning so much in terms of just like uh, appreciating the small things the patience it needs. Uh, And just like, I'm trying to make sure that I bring these children up in a world that is wonderful and that they have all the tools. And so I feel like I learned so much for even just like slowing down life. I think oftentimes we're taught to perform and overperform. And they're telling me just to enjoy, enjoy the playground, put down your email that Slack conversation can wait. And I think that is really lovely in today's world where we're on back-to-back Zooms <laughs> that, yes. to give you that yourself that moment to just enjoy what's in front of you. I love that answer. I don't think it's dodging the question <laughs> at all. I think that's amazing. That's the first time I've had that answer given to me on this show. And I love it because like you said, you know, it's, it's a practice in patience. It's a practice in enjoying and being present in the moments that you have now. Because like work is always going to be there, whether we want it to be or not, like there's going to be something that we can do. And for you specifically, like you're doing so many things on top of being a mother, being a partner, being being someone who's part of this other unit. 
that can maybe feel separate from these things at times. And yes, do you have you do you feel like you found a balance? I feel like a lot of people are like, I don't know, like I, I don't know what balance is. It's just trying to figure it out. Do you feel like you found a way to navigate all of these things to make them one whole? I mean, I am not the best with routine, but I really believe in routine. So mm. if you give yourself a window, so when I was like, I'm going to go work out and I didn't really have a plan in place, I, you know, there's days I just kind of don't do it. Um, nope. <laughs> now I have a plan every morning. There's an alarm clock. There's a calendar, mm. which I check off. And so having routines like, okay, my kids are in bed at this time. So that means I sleep at this time. And having some boundaries is one really good way to find that balance so that you're, you don't just completely fall off, right? You have a container for these things and the, and the hours you find the space to make those things work. So whether, you know, you're trying to eat healthier, what can you do to help that? Can you get food delivery? That is a cart. That's always the same, like, right. Mm. So if you limit the amount of variables and as a busy parent or human, like if you can lessen the variables that could get in your way of distracting you, that's how I find the best place into kind of, you know, having the most streamlined life I can have. I love it. Eliminate the variables. I think that's a great piece of advice. I'm going to write that down, <laughs> but stick it on a sticky note right here in front of me so I can remember that as I go forward here. Bernice, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, again, I really appreciate you sharing so much of your knowledge uh, in such a short time. These conversations, again, are focused on these missing pieces, and I feel like we touched on a lot of different things. And I really appreciate, you know, always finding a way to bring it back to scarcity. I think I feel like the more that we name that, the more that we talk about it, the more people will understand we can live in a mindset of abundance and not feel like we are fighting all for the same thing. That this is the, that this, it's the end all be all and we can never, there's never going to be enough because there already is enough. We just have to figure out how to rewire and, and move in this other direction. Um, as we close it out, you do so much for everybody else. How do we, how, do, how does our audience, how does this community here, how do we support you going forward? Oh, thank you for that generosity. Check out the organization. Um, we are AsiansinAdvertising.com. We have plenty of programs or events that you can attend as well as a podcast called Asians in Advertising. Very simple. Uh, if you want to learn more about me, check out my LinkedIn page, which is Bernice Chow, C-H-A-O. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on all the socials with Hello Bernice. Uh, but it's so wonderful to be here today. And if you want to invite me in to come speak, I'm also happy to do that as well. Amazing. You heard it here, folks. Invite Bernice to come in and speak because she's going to ha have even more incredible knowledge to drop on you um, than we have here just in this conversation. We will definitely have all of these things linked in the show notes as well. You'll be able to connect with Asian and advertising. You'll be able to connect with Bernice there. Again, Bernice, Thank you so, so much for coming on to the show. It has been a pleasure and an honor. And honestly, I've said thank you a bunch, and I don't think I can appropriately or properly thank you enough for giving me this time and this privilege today. Thank you. Thanks Absolutely. You're at, you're welcome back any, any time. For everybody else, like I said, you know, you can find everything that we talked about here in the show notes right below us. You can also follow us on Instagram at Conversation Podpiece. If you do feel inclined and you'd like to leave us a review on whatever player that you're listening to this on right now, we would greatly appreciate it. And if you're interested in supporting the show in the future in any way, you can hop into our DMs or visit our website, conversationpeacepod.com. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong. 
And this is Conversation Peace. Thanks, Bernice. Bye.